Guten Abend, America. You're getting sleepy, very sleepy. Okay, um, we just listened to some Lawrence O'Donnell. I'm going to tweet my little comments here. Okay, anyway, I wrote, uh, I wrote, women leaders are 80% less likely to be charged with corruption than men in power. Let's demand half women in Congress now. I said, ask Governor Whitmer why she didn't press charges against Trump for inciting terrorism against her. Okay. So, uh, let's see what might as touch is up to our babysit the playlist. Looks like we're all caught up, man. Oh, that's a bummer. I hate it when that happens. It's like when you finish reading a really good book. Like, oh, damn. Didn't want it to end. Michael Cohen, top MSNBC host. GOP's main talking point. Trump accidentally destroys GOP's main talking point during press Aaron, conference. Half the people can't even define it. They don't know what it is. Wait, what was that? I hear woke, woke, woke. You know, it's like just a term that used half the people can't even define it. They don't know what it is. Gabe Sanchez. Hey, everyone, and welcome back this. to What Was That? The show where I dive head first. Already seen that. I noticed that the um, mind-blowing Sumer new Sumerian documentary got like twice as many. Call me Justin commented, huh? Uh, Democracy US replied, tell everyone to say remove maggots from government now. Yeah. Mm, uploaded four new videos four minute, 44 minutes ago. Trump Prison. Oh, nice. Trump prison sentence predicted by top former federal prosecutor, and it's brutal. <laughs> hey, everyone. Harry here to talk about the sentence that Donald Trump would likely receive were he convicted on the charges in the indictment unsealed Friday yeah. and brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith in the Department of Justice. Toast. Okay. We're going to have to go through a little bit of sentencing guidelines law in the federal system. Uh, hang in there. It won't be too uh, arcane or mathematical, and it'll be worth it. Um, first, when people are charged in federal crimes, you'll often see reported the charge uh, provides for up to a 20-year sentence or up to a 40-year sentence, and, you know, 
pretty outlandish numbers. That's huge And then charge. at least if it's a press release from a from the Department of Justice, they will 37 add charges. the proviso. The actual sentence will be determined by the application of the sentencing guidelines. What are the sentencing guidelines? They were a revolution in criminal sentencing in the mid-80s, actually orchestrated by Justice Stephen Breyer before he was a justice when he was a um, counsel in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And they aimed, there were shocking numbers about how different people got dramatically different sentences based on what judge they happened to draw. Uh, and also among individual judges with white-collar crimes versus street crimes and the like. So this was an attempt to make sentencing much more um, routinized and consistent and fair. Um, so the sentencing guidelines, uh, the, the real sort of... Um, Core. There is a descending guideline are this thick manual that you carry around if you're a prosecutor and the back page, the back inside cover you look at again and again and again. It's a grid, the sort of magic grid that is the real locus right, of the guideline. Charge uh, provides for up to a 20 year sentence or up to a 40 year sentence and, you know, pretty outlandish numbers. And then at least if it's a press release from a from the Department of Justice, they will add the necessary um, proviso. The actual sentence will be determined by the application of the sentencing guidelines. What are the sentencing guidelines? They were a revolution in criminal sentencing in the mid-80s, actually orchestrated by Justice Stephen Breyer, before he was a justice, when he was a um, counsel in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And they aimed, there were shocking numbers about how different people got dramatically different sentences based on what judge they happened to draw. Uh, and also among individual judges with white-collar crimes versus street crimes and the like. So this was an attempt to make sentencing much more um, routinized and consistent and fair. Um, so the sentencing guidelines, uh, the, the real sort of... Um, Core. There is a descending guideline are this thick manual that you carry around if you're a prosecutor and the back page, the back inside cover you look at again and again and again. It's a grid, the sort of magic grid that is the real locus of the guidelines computation. We'll put it up here so you can see it. But as you see, it's got an X axis and a Y axis. Uh, the X axis is the offense level. Uh, from 1 to 43, and the y-axis is criminal history. It goes up pretty severely on the you know notion that you really got to um, tamp down hard on recidivists and the longer sentences, you eventually you, you have to, uh, you know, completely um, impose draconian times in jail. All right, so... That's, the, that's where you look to find how long a sentence is. It used to be that that was um, 
final except in rare and prescribed instances when for specified reasons a district court judge applying the guidelines could go up or down so-called upward or downward departure the supreme court ruled the sort of revolution to the revolution in the last 10 or 15 years that you can't uh, the guidelines cannot be imposed mandatorily it's a violation of defendants' rights to sort of individualized sentencing, and so they are considered merely precatory, merely recommendations, and a district court has discretion to depart, um, but still has to provide reasons uh, and and uh, for a downward or upward departure, and that that those are subject to review by a court of appeals as to whether a district court abused its discretion. All right, so that's the backdrop that sets the table. Now the guideline grid itself. Let's put this up for just one more second and uh, scan down from one to about 30 because that's where we are going. Um, for um, Trump's charges now, the, of course there are several and there's a whole different question about if he were convicted, whether they'd be served concurrently or at the same time that is or consecutively one after the other doesn't really matter as you'll see the guideline sentence that will be uh, imposed if he's convicted here of the, the leading charge of so 31 leading charges under the espionage act they don't by the way meet, make for 31 sentences they would wind up in basically the same place but the charge um the leading charge would impose a sentence way more than his natural uh, life expectancy. In other words, he would certainly die in prison under a guideline sentence. How does that work? Okay, so you start under the Espionage Act, you begin with a base level of, 20, of 25. Do you see that on the grid? And um, from there, you have to add four. This is, we're just calculating base offense level arriving at 29 if the material uh, was top secret, if the classified material that you unlawfully retain was top secret, which it is in Trump's case. So before, with no controversy whatsoever, we're up at 29. Then there are two or three other adjustments that you could add to increase the offense level. He, there, he Remember, he's charged in a conspiracy and he played a leadership role. Even without the conspiracy, he plays a leadership role in um, directing Evan Nauta, uh, I mean, Walt Nauta, Evan Corcoran, others. That's an extra four points to the offense level under the guidelines, and now uh, that could put him at 33. Uh, there's obstruction on the Espionage Act, not, not, not simply the separate obstruction charge, but he obstructs when he's not only does he not return when given, but he, but he throws sand in the gears. He lies about things, moves around boxes. Seems pretty clearly obstruction. That's another two. And then uh, potential other two for abuse of trust based on position. And, you know, you can't get higher than the President of the United States and a more kind of flagrant abuse. So add those together. You're looking at 37. Uh, in other words, 
one little sorry for the for the uh, quiver here on my computer but that is 210 to 262 right we're talking about in excess uh, even the low end is almost 20 years as i say many well beyond his life expectancy it means he would clearly die in prison yeah all right so that that would be what the guidelines themselves provide now as i mentioned they are considered they are vol, uh precatory and a district court could depart but you've got to give reasons and this is a really tricky situation taking a step back you know we've talked for years really about if trump were indicted or charged would there be an avenue for for an overall sort of solomonic what's in the best interest of the public kind of sentence the way in our only real um precedent here the nixon case ford the president of the united states stepped in and said for the good of the public i'm going to pardon him or and you know He's in exile. Our long national nightmare is over. We needn't put him away. Um, now, you could imagine a similar sort of, of figure in calculus saying, you know, if you were if they were just a philosopher king or in charge of the country saying, you know, if he's convicted, if he goes away, we don't need the extra revenge factor of a, a long jail sentence or even a jail sentence, maybe. It's okay for home confinement and, in fact, putting him in jail, the vividness of the orange jumpsuit and the, the revealing, in fact, that he's, you know, he's bald uh, and the incredible deprivation for a, um, and privations for, you know, some people would rejoice at that, but others would be, you know, completely in, incensed and inflamed, maybe the best thing for the country. I'm not, I'm stating no opinion on this, but I'm just saying the, that it's, um, plausible you could have that view but you know it's not clear how that view factors in given the way we've approached this case so you know biden and garland could have a, could have imposed that that kind of approach with playing the joints once garland appointed jack smith would put the whole case on this straightforward legal regime, treating him as any other person. There was would have been one last opportunity when they came in for their meeting for the Department of Justice to have fashioned a non-custodial sentence. They could have said, okay, here's all the charges we're going to convict you of. Plead now, maybe agree never to run for office again and will recommend and we think the court will impose a non-custodial sentence you won't have to be uh in in jail and um that'll that'll be you know a global resolution including maybe the january 6th stuff which is still out there but there was no um uh overture of any kind or willingness for him to plead so now he's in a system that doesn't have that kind of flexibility anymore. The, the the Department of Justice, on the model of treating him like any other defendant, you know, they they're they're looking at twenty plus years under the guidelines. How can they recommend zero? And a district court judge could say, but for this, essentially try to do the same imposition of of a factor that just doesn't exist in sentencing guidelines what's in the best interest of the country and give him a sentence of next to nothing 
but um, and maybe a court of appeals would uphold it, but it's just not really in the in the legal regime that he's now in. There's the possibility of clemency if he's, um, you know, that Biden could impose to try to play the forward role. But basically, it seems to me now, as with many other things, maybe Eileen Cannon is a wild card here. But it seems to me that, you know, we're looking at a situation where he's going to, you know, the, the law points to 20 years in prison and he's got to see some prison. He's got it. It would be likely it would uh, for him to see prison time because no individual actor can sort of speak for the whole system and doing her or his job under the law makes it very difficult to um, cut this kind of huge slack to keep a former president out of jail. So that's the the situation and the stakes we're talking about. Um, just a quick word on uh, Walt Nauta, his co-conspirator. He was certainly offered a, a, a sweet deal. My best guess is, you know, plead guilty to the lie you told the FBI, which we have you did to rights on when you said, oh, no, no sensitive documents here um, and cooperate and tell us about what Trump told you and you won't have to be in jail. And he's the guy who's going down with the ship. It really is like a, a um organized crime uh, analogy uh, where, you know, he's the loyal foot soldier who's going to stay true to the boss, even if it means going to jail. There, there, the, um, there was a, state, uh, a saying in the mafia in, uh, that you used to hear or hear about, I can do a nickel standing on my head. That meant I'll go to jail for five years. That's okay. What actually broke the back of the mafias was, was when the United States passed RICO laws and, and very long drug laws, and the, and the uh, mafia was into drugs, and that's what actually um, broke them, because the, they, they would do short sentences. That seems to be the mindset of Walt uh, Nauta, so he would be looking at uh, basically somewhere in the two to um, four-year range for his role in a conspiracy to obstruct justice, which is what he's been charged with. All right, there you have it. Um, Trump look, looking at, without some outlandish and extra legal um, exception, granted because he's former president or would it would inflame the country, he's looking at a, a sentence that will, you know, would put him in jail for life and now to looking for a few years uh, as well. It's a long time away, by the way, a year or more, and especially, well, you know, with Eileen Cannon, that's what seems to be at the end of the road. Talk to you later. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this video and other Talking Feds content, please take a second to like and subscribe. Talk to you later.
I've got the host of the Rachel Maddow Show and the host of the new podcast, Deja News, Rachel Maddow. Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I actually interviewed Jen Psaki on a Thursday morning last month, and Thursday afternoon, Trump got indicted in the Manhattan DA case, and she very kindly offered to, to do a pickup shot on Friday morning, but I'm glad that we scheduled this interview after Trump's latest indictment, because not exactly a topic you can skate by. So, uh, so first, Although you never know, by the time we're ready to post this, there might be another one. Might be another one, exactly. <laughs> so on that topic, is there any planet on which this redounds to Trump's benefit, or is that just wish-casting by the right? Because that's the that's the message that they're trying to convey here. I mean, sure, definitely. You know, I mean, we've we've seen, we have, we now have experience with a former president and current presidential candidate being indicted. It happened two months ago to the same guy. And so we can actually look at the real-world impact of that and see that it does appear to have benefited his poll numbers, benefited him um, in a way that maybe stepped on the um, sort of uh, stepped on the launches of his uh, Republican presidential um, um, rivals, at least in the sense that it kept him in the center of the news and it gave them all awkward questions that there's no right answer to from a Republican political perspective uh, in terms of what they think about his criminal liability. So, Yes, we've seen it help him already. Now, should it help him? No. In the long run, is it a good thing to potentially be in prison and to be in trial in multiple venues for serious for, criminal for charges? <laughs> like, maybe. Maybe. But, I mean, if it's going to help him in the long run, it means that in Republican politics, it's an asset to be a criminal. And that is a really, that's a really radical political party. I mean, that's, that, that then says less about the candidate and his uh, alleged criminality than it does about the party that wants to reward something like that. If that makes somebody's go, go up in the esteem of your party, then your party is is choosing that as one of its core values. And that's, that's I mean, I feel like this is a moment not so much for Trump. Like, we kind of know what Trump did and who Trump is. Um, it'll be interesting to see this play out. But this is a real question for the Republican Party. This is Is this your standard bearer? Is this who you think should represent your party to the country and the country to the world. I do think that they already have answered that question so many times over that, you know, it's just kind of us imposing our views onto them by virtue of asking, is this really who you are? Could this be who your standard bearer is? Is this, you know, when, when he did the Access Hollywood tape, when he did, you know, all of all of everything that he's done, and we've come back and said, how could this, how could this be someone that you're willing to, to prop up? And every time they've answered the same way. So I think, you know, we're imposing our, our values onto them by virtue of asking, but I think in terms of their values, they've already answered that question. Yeah, it, but I mean, moments like this, you know, real benchmark moments, you got a, you know, three inch headline, uh, you know, on the front page of all the national newspapers and everything. It'll be, this is a, this is a moment in history. And what we do here will be, you know, studied generations later in terms of how the country reacted to this. But I think you can also think about it in terms of the way that other countries around the world, other political actors around the world look at this. And if we are going to have one of the two governing parties in the United States led by somebody who is potentially going to be governing from jail, um, or at least from the docket, um, and they are celebrating, cel not just tolerating it, but celebrating the fact that he has been charged as something that signifies his virtue and his power and what he has to bring to the country, um, 
that's a real radical moment um, for for our country and governance and whether or not we're going to, you know, sort of keep the constitutional framework that we've got in which everybody's, uh, you know, in which all the branches of the government are co-equal and everybody follows court orders. You know, a, a big um, boon for him in terms of his rise has been the media. And recently we've seen a lot of shakeup in the media, even in just the last few weeks. Fox's primetime numbers are down significantly as their viewers revolt against that network for firing Tucker and generally trying to figure out how not to get sued. CNN's numbers are down as their viewers revolt against the network for just arbitrarily deciding to lunge to the right. Meanwhile, MSNBC's ratings have surged. Your show has been number one in its time slot for cable news for both all adults and in the demo for two months straight. Can you talk about the media environment today and why these networks are trying to lead with these very blatant and inauthentic strategies and it feels like strategies as opposed to just leading with your values? I mean, I don't. I'm I'm a I'm a bad commentator on these on these things because I'm in the middle of them. Um, yeah. You know, it's like the 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 one person who can't tell you the temperature of the water is the person who's been swimming around in it for a while. Like, yeah. oh, it feels it feels like body temp to me. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm not great at at media analysis. I will also say though that my experience, having been through a lot of ebbing and flowing in ratings and in the um, uh, the relationship between the three major networks in terms of how many, who's turning it, who's tuning in and why, and who's in turmoil and who's stable and all these things. Um, is It's, it's kind of like the, you know, it, it's, it's like the weather in San Francisco. If you don't like it, wait a minute, because <laughs> it's about, it's about to be something else. Um, I, I do think that these things are temporary. I feel like the networks tend to find their equilibrium after moments of, um, of chaos. I don't feel like we've seen radical change in the cable news landscape specifically um, over the course of my career. I think things change a little, but not a lot. Um, and so so we'll see how it shakes out in the long run. We definitely are at a moment when, you know, you look at the ratings on any given day and it's weird. It's just, it's it's not it's not what you would have expected a year ago for sure. And it's certainly, I think, not what you'd expect a year from now. But Everybody has to make their own decision. I think the old arguments about um, whatever happened to objective news, why do we have to have people where we know whether they're conservative or liberal, I sort of feel like at least we're, we're kind of done having that facile, reductive um, argument um, anymore. And, and I do think that the conversation is joined and people are, rec are, are struggling with the question about how to deal in the free press with a major political figure who wants to abolish the free press. Like, it's just, you know, it's the same thing about contending in the criminal justice system with someone who believes um, the criminal justice system should be dismantled and that there shouldn't be an FBI and there shouldn't be a rule of law and that we shouldn't have to follow judges' orders. Like, when you are in an oppositional relationship or at least a um, sort of coverage relationship with somebody who wants to undo what you are doing, who wants to make you disappear, who who's just decided that the process is illegitimate. You have to reckon with that. You can't just treat them like anybody else. To that point, what was your reaction to the Trump Town Hall, for example? Like how? I know this is the question that, that's constantly asked, but how should media outlets cover a guy who is clearly a major news figure, but as soon as you give him any attention, because he is that figure, he'll exploit that attention to basically perpetuate dangerous propaganda, to undermine the very system that he's running to lead. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the crux of the matter. That's the, that's the, there isn't an easy right answer to it, but I do think that's the right question. And that's the start of, that's the start of getting to the, um, 
to a healthier answer with it. I mean, I, I will say, though, that the there is a difference between giving someone attention because they are a contender for political office and polling very highly and somebody who's, you know, has a good shot at leading their party or getting potentially back into the White House. You have to pay, you can't pretend somebody like that doesn't exist. You have to pay them attention as a political figure, as a political contender. But there's a difference between giving someone attention and giving someone the floor, right? You also don't have to effectively make them um, a host or an anchor or a, a character in your, on your, on your air. You, you cover them. You don't. Um, you cover them. You don't hand them to Mike. I've had to reconcile with the fact that you know I, I've had issues in terms of like the the fawning, you know, overbearing coverage of Donald Trump before. And I think the difference that I try to do when I'm you know when I'm doing my coverage of him on my YouTube channel is to basically ask people, as opposed to just giving him a platform, a megaphone to spew his bullshit. Uh, are you leaving after watching my broadcast coming away with more inaccurate information or more accurate information? So you yeah. can you can cover him. It's not the act of covering him. We're not going to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that he doesn't exist. But um, by virtue of doing it, are you are you leaving coming coming away more ill informed or better informed by virtue of listening to what he said? Yes, and I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that sort of discipline is not that hard to teach. It's not that hard to explain. It's a easy to recognize principle that people could adopt without too much graduate school, you know. Um, and the idea is, you know, if if he has said something, if he has proposed something about, you know, he's proposed to ban the entry into the United States of people who are Muslims. You know what I mean? Like you can cover that and there's ways to cover it that absolutely add to people's understanding about what is important about the fact that he has covered it. You don't necessarily need to play his speech in which he denigrates Muslims and purports to justify what he's doing. What might be helpful is to talk about how this matches other types of leaders in other countries or in other eras who have proposed these sorts of things, what it might mean, why this, why that is an unconstitutional thing, what will happen when that gets into the court system, uh, and what it means to Muslim communities to have this sort of rhetoric out there. You you can, you can cover all of those things in a substantive way without giving him the platform to advance the kind of attacks on those communities that he's trying to effectuate by floating that policy. It's just, you know, it's, it's, I think your, your principle there is, is simple and true. You know, I, I can't imagine a world where Trump actually gains support by virtue of being federally indicted, which is what he was here. And that's considering the guy already has enough issues winning an election, but now having to contend with a federal indictment um, might seem to suggest that his support would actually contract if he were to run in a general election. Would the rest of the Republican Party be better served not to rally around the guy, which is, of course, what they're doing? Or... Do they just have no choice here, given the hold that Trump has on the base? I mean, political parties exist for a reason, right? We don't just have people freelance and run on their own without attachment to parties, even though some independent candidates try every now and again. That hasn't generally been our system. And that's in part because the parties are supposed to do something. The parties are supposed to have a role in vetting and um, elevating appropriate candidates who stand for their values, who represent not just the the best of what the country has to offer as a governing class, but specifically what the party believes ought to be um, sort of their, their best shot at, at leadership. And so 
the Republican Party abdicating its role and saying we are totally neutral among all the candidates. Um, and whoever wants to run, whoever likes that, if, if enough people like them, then great. We will attach ourselves to that candidate in a value neutral way. We have nothing to say about it. I mean, it's just it's it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it's within living memory, you know, the Republican Party detached itself aggressively from David Duke, who was, you know, running in, in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, and it made a difference to have the Republican president at the time say, you know what, that's not who we are. And that's not the kind of candidate who we are attached to and no Republican should support them. I mean, that's happened before, you know, even in, in more recent living memory. You might remember the issues with um, Congressman Steve King of Iowa, who was getting more and more aggressive and overt in his white supremacism. Um, and this era's Republican Party said, you know, Steve King, you, you can't you can't actually function in Congress anymore. We're effectively de-endorsing you. We're taking you off your committees and um, we're going to fund a challenger to you. We don't we don't support you anymore. The parties exist for a reason. It is not just fundraising. The parties exist to vet candidates at a very basic level um, and to make sure that we don't have people who are totally inappropriate to the job uh, aspiring for the job with the party support. And so, you know, they can decide they can make it. They could make a substantive decision about Donald Trump. They've decided not to. Um, but it is within the realm of possibility. And I think that's a question that probably should be asked more rather than assuming that they're powerless in this. Yeah, and, and I would also add that another responsibility of these parties is it, inherently is is to win elections and have some type of a platform that would lend itself to garnering more support. And the irony of what's happening now with these parties by virtue of seeing that they're espousing positions that are losing them support, even despite not doing the work that it takes to win them, um, and just pretending that they won in Texas and, and, and Georgia and Michigan and Arizona and Wisconsin um, is kind of is kind of so antithetical to what the point of this all is, which is, you know, again, to propose an agenda that will garner them those votes and then and then govern effectively. But now they're doing the opposite. They're proposing agendas that are so extreme. They're proposing abortion bans and LGBT bans and interstate travel bans and book bans and vowing to cut earned benefits and not doing the work of making themselves accountable to the people that they're supposed to represent because they feel like they don't need to anymore because when push comes to shove and it comes to election time, they're just going to say that they won anyway. And, mm -hmm. and that kind of is like for the first time we're seeing like what happens when a party kind of goes off the rails from what it's supposed to be doing inherently. Well, I, th I think there there is a, I mean, just in political science terms, there's a relationship between the unpopularity of your agenda and the degree to which you want democratic accountability for your policies, right? Like if you want to do stuff that's really unpopular, you don't want to be democratically accountable uh, for the reaction to those policies. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a surprise that we're seeing counter majoritarian moves like, you know, in Ohio where Republicans are saying, oh, people can no longer vote about what's in the constitution or we're going to make it harder for people to vote about what's in the constitution because if we let Ohio voters do that, they're going to undo our abortion ban. So therefore, will make it harder for people to cast that kind of a vote at a popular referendum. I mean, 
you, end, you, you play with the mechanisms of feedback when you don't like the feedback that you're getting. And you can do that, you know, you can sort of game the system in the short run, but in the long run, if you're doing stuff that people don't want you to do, then you're going to have a problem in a democracy. And either you then try to undo democracy or you adjust so that you're more in line with the will of the people. As far as the 2024 race goes, we've now watched the Republican field blow up to the point that we're effectively reliving 2016, with the irony being that all of those Republicans are running, presumably because they think that Trump shouldn't be the next president, and yet, by virtue of there being so many candidates, they are effectively doing their part to hand him the nomination. Now, your new podcast, again, is called Deja News, comes out Monday, June 12th. It looks at the ways that history repeats itself, and you're obviously going a little farther back than 2016, but this still does prove the thesis of that theory that history repeats itself to, to a pretty staggering degree. Were you struck at all by the extent to which even recent history is repeating itself with regard to the Trump of it all? And, and speak about Deja News here. Yeah, I, I mean, the whole idea of Deja News is that when things have happened that seem crazy, that seem unprecedented, that seem like we have to invent a whole new way of responding to this because we've never contended with anything like it. Um, there is sometimes something else in history, especially, you know, something from another, not just another era, but maybe another place that can give us a frame of reference um, in terms of what it's looked like when something like this has happened before. And so episode one um, is a, there's a parallel in history in another country of something very much like the January 6th attack on Congress that happened in another country. Um, and in that other country, it actually worked. It did stop the transfer of power. It did install a pro-fascist um, right-wing government to replace a elected center-left government. Um, so it's that's helpful to me to understand these things. And, you know, I, I think there's there's a way in which there are processes in our political system that um, by nature recur. Like we're going to have a field of candidates running for a major party nomination every four years on both sides. Like that's just going to happen. And so um, that is less a sort of historical echo than it is like, you know, is there a learning curve? <laughs> the last time this very unusual sort of pro-authoritarian um, Republican populist candidate was on the ballot, look at what happened when there were 16 other Republicans running against him. Okay, well, now he's on the ballot again. There's going to be at least 10 other Republicans who are running against him. Have they learned from the last time this happened in 2016? They, they had a dress rehearsal uh, in terms of what it means to run against him. I do think, actually, that there, if you listen to the way that some of the candidates are talking about this primary, it's clear kind of who gets the lesson of what went wrong in 2016 and who didn't. All the candidates who, when asked about Trump, say, I don't want to talk about Trump. I'd like to talk about what I bring to the table. Yeah, you can tell they they were asleep in 2016. Um, the candidates who actually are trying to run by running against him, by saying, here's why he shouldn't be the nominee, I think that's the obvious lesson of 2016. And so few people are willing to do that in a sustained way. In 2016, we'll see if they can sustain it in 2024. Well, we'll see if the Asa Hutchinsons out there uh, <laughs> catch fire in the Republican. Uh, I mean, but primary. so, but what do you think about Asa Hutchinson versus Chris Christie, though? Right. So, like, Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie are both going to be minus one, you know, less than one percent candidates, but both of them want to contend enough to mount anti-Trump 
candidacies yeah. and to keep anti-Trump attacks alive in that primary process. Right. Not a bad strategy. No. Um, particularly if everybody else is going to be going, oh, well, you know, I, I don't think that we should be persecuting him, but I, I would instead would rather cut the deficit. You know, <laughs> right. I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's finish off with this. Um, you know, I listened to the pilot episode, which again will be out on June 12th. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, like you, you said, it explores the similarities between January 6th and another date where a coup to overturn, overtake the government actually did work. Uh, I know that episode two is going to focus on what DeSantis is doing in Florida um, and that that was tried before, which I'm very excited to listen to. Was there an episode in particular that you're especially partial to? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's going to be, it's a limited series. So this is just six episodes. Um, and the first one comes out Monday, June 12th. They'll come out every Monday thereafter. And I don't want to give you the topics of the other ones because I feel like part of it is like, there's, there's definitely a spoiler effect in terms of doing this thing. But I mean, I, I you know, I, I kind of love all of them. The first, the first one, there's a reason that we put it first. No, we didn't know that the former president was going to be indicted. <laughs> um, uh, before, you know, the, I guess he's going to be arraigned the day after the first episode comes out, which is just crazy timing. Um, but in terms of contending with radical movements that are trying to undo democratic institutions, like, yeah, this is helpful. So I think we ha we sort of hit it on the, we sort of hit the bullseye in terms of modern resonance. So I'm happy, really happy that that one's first. But I hope that all of them, I mean, again, the, the idea is if history doesn't appeal to everybody in terms of contextualizing what's going on in the news, but to the extent that it is something that works for you and that helps you understand what's going on, all of these historical analogies that we're going to bring to the fore through this podcast, I think they they can just make us calmer and more confident and better informed with contending with things that can otherwise Sort of feel overwhelming. You know, it's if if you are overwhelmed and 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 particularly if you are outraged by what's happening with DeSantis targeting the LGBTQ community in Florida and the, and the Republican Party helping him do that there, I do think it's helpful to hear episode two of Deja News where we talk about how Florida conservatives did that before and what happened to them um, when they really went too far. Well, we'll leave it there. That seems like a great place to stop. So, of course, you can check out Rachel Maddow on MSNBC. And trust me, you will want to download Deja News wherever you listen to podcasts. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great. Thank you so much. This is fun.